0: We're getting a show on the road for the collection series of Verbal School, but it will be another couple of weeks before I can announce when the exact dates are. The ones I can remember are Richard Landon, who will be speaking here during the third week of Verbal School, who will be replacing me during the spring semester of 1988 he is the Robo Library and University of Toronto Fisher Library. And also Felix Oyens, who is lecturing on aspects of early printed books and supporting the classic Paul Needham he is teaching in, <coughs> in Robo School this summer. Oriens and Needham first lectured before us in Roblox School in 1983. And uh, Then did it again in '84 and then Felix did it by himself in 85 and took a year off in 86 and in 87, but came back to give an evening lecture in 87. And I learned that talking to either of them was talking to the same person when I asked Felix if you wanted to teach this year. He said so he didn't, but he had a feeling that Paul Newman might be willing to. And am sure not. Uh, so, this year we get even teaching and all of lecturing. A good value and income combination. I'll have to complete this of the school evening lectures out by the end of this month. The lecture tonight is the final in the spring series and we'll be taking a break between now and the week of June 6th. Charles Benson from the Department of Old and the Books at Kennedy College, Dublin, speaking of, on the fate of the Irish book trade. It's very great to
1: welcome him to Columbia. Good evening. I'm very glad to be here. I was up in Montreal, staying with friends, and, um, two hours get this um, and they said, of course you'll have to speak very slowly down there. Your accent will confuse them. Well that's all pretty well, but as I was preparing for this, um, I did one version, which I reckoned was going to last two and a half hours. Now then I got to say, cut it short keep it because people have got to get to the drinks. So, if this runs over time, you're perfectly welcome to talk to the drink, while I keep droning on, and um, then you can get back in and get the sort of final paragraph. Because, after all, in most of these things, it's only the first and last that we matter. Now, uh, yes, the page of the Dublin Book trade. hmm. On the 13th of October 1851, William Wakeman, a wholesale agent for the London publishing firm of Baldwin, Craddock and Joy, and bookseller on his own account in Dublin, was asked about printing in Ireland. Is it diminished or increased? Reply: Since the Act of Union, it is almost annihilated. It was on the same footing as America previous to that time, and every new book was reprinted here. The general state of things you regard as, quote, comparatively nothing, except a description of Catholic books of a very cheap sort which are sold at so low a rate that they could not be printed in England for the same money, and also a few school books used exclusively in Ireland. Twenty-one years later, in 1842, the novelist William Carlton wrote in the preface to his ne- the new edition of his Traits and Stories of the Irish Peasantry, I quote, In truth, until within the last ten or twelve years, an Irish author never thought of publishing in his own country, and the consequence was that literary men followed the example of our great landlords. They became absentee, and drained the country of its intellectual wealth precisely as the others exhausted it of its rents. Thus did Ireland stand in the singular anomaly of adding some of her most distinguished names to the literature of Great Britain, while she herself remained incapable of presenting to the world anything beyond a schoolbook or a pamphlet. Uh, now that is of course with a distinct nationalist bias, but there's much truth in it. And yet, there's no doubt that the numbers employed in the printing and book-selling trades um, gradually increased <coughs> from 1800 to 1850. There was a stag—the 18th century is the best-known period. Um, after there was a stagnation in the late. 1790s to about 1830, and after that, the numbers were. Anyway, before going into that, and i explain why on earth I'm doing all this. Um, the, this is all work in progress, and in fact, um, at this stage, I'm only really sort of raising questions rather than answering them. Because what I'm really doing is producing a directory of people employed in trade and trying to sort of work out how they did That is dealing with printing and allied trades, excluding paper makers, because that is a area which is so complicated now uh, from all sorts of regions, including um, Luddite burners and machinery and all the sort of stuff that we can copy up in 41 Scotsmen being imported as black players um, the secondary aspect is to interpret of what the trade did now the directory itself has been built on five pillars guild records the city directories imprints the official paper, which is the Dublin Gazette, and one other newspaper for each year, mainly so much newsletter because it's convenient to take home, and any other information found for the sort of, filling of the brickwork. Now, um, the real obstacle for completing this in any reasonable length of time is the sheer variety of sources. So, um, I give it three years, and use by the second edition. That's it. Now, the real question is why the import- the trading conditions after 1801 are so radically different to those of the preceding century. The reason is that in 1800 the Act of Union was passed, amalgamating the previously separate kingdoms of Ireland and Great Britain, and this brought in trade, a copyright act which for the first time put Irish printers and publishers on the same footing as the English rights. Before 1800 there was no copyright law in Ireland, and the Dublin trade flourished largely as a reprint trade, supplying in great measure the intellectual needs of Ireland, and, in the last quarter of the century, building up a large export business to the English-speaking parts of North America. During the 18th century, the Dublin booksellers operated the practice of customary recognition of local rights in, co- in copy. Most of our knowledge of this, in fact, comes from public recommendations of papers, and over breaches of this procedure. And you know, was, this customary recognition worked sufficiently well for there to be a fair amount of evidence of Irish publishers paying English, particularly London publishers, for rights to reprint in Dublin. This notion of some sort of absolute hatred between Ireland and England uh, on booklet is uh, a bit dodgy. There were co-publishing agreements, particularly towards the uh, end of the century, for example, Henry Boyd's translation of Dante's Inferno, published in Dublin by Byrne and by in London in 1785. And later in the century, when John Archer appears as a Dublin bookseller on a number of London imprints. But the weakness of the unregulated trade was it could never build up a pool of authors. And secondly, I think the economics of it were largely undermined by the position of the House of Lords in 1774, which struck down the concept of perpetual copyright, meaning, which opened the way to cheap reprints there. So the margins of profit are coming under pressure towards the end of the century, and rising duties on paper imposed by the Irish Parliament led to petitions from the master printers and also from the journeyman printers, who complained in 1796, I quote, that in consequence of said duty, the price of printing paper has been so enhanced that the printing of elegant editions of several useful and valuable works has declined, and an increased importation of books substituted to the manifest injury of petitioners and their families, that a considerable number of printers of Dublin were heretofore employed on editions of works to be exported to America, which was found to be greater in amount than the home consumption. But since the new duty on foreign paper and the extravagant rise in the price of Irish paper added to the inadequacy of its supply, their employment in that line has in great measure diminished. End of. The periodical press came under enormous pressure at the end of the century. Very um, the nice kind of enormous political turn land, with uh, agitation for complete separation of everything from the <coughs> Uh, the United Irish land finally in seventeen ninety eight a uh nothing. Now the government of these circumstances clamped down on the liberties of the press and uh, put most of their draconian legislation under the title and act to secure the liberty of the press. Um, with a selection of heavy fines for not being licensed and um, of heavy tax and advertisements. So much so the uh, periodical press was virtually reduced to being dependent on government patronage to appear at all. Um, so this was sort of really, really skewed. Now, the um, many of the printers got out. The most famous example of somebody who got out early is uh, Problematic early. Um The decline can be seen in. Uh, 66 booksellers being listed in 1792, down to 43 in 1800, and that led to the in the next five years. Um, now many had an established connection with America for this. In 1793, John Rice in Dublin published Points of Law on Equity, the following imprint. Dublin print for John Rice, Paul Green, and sold his shops in Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Charleston, North America, 1793. Some were conservative reasons, others for political reasons. Patrick Byrne and John Chambers were conservative united Irishmen and their copyers rather than crushed. Those staying behind were, after the coming of the Copyright Act on the 2nd of July 1801, now working in a provincial city. And its publishing for the next 30 years was a provincial trade. And the whole basis for the retail book trade was gone. Now, of course, printed stuff was for the printers. I mean, bookselling continued. Um, imports would grow grown substantially over the following 20 years. There was still money in Dublin, but the extra influx usually brought in by the parliamentary season was gone. And the printers had to scout around for a lot of jobbing business, um, which was in the main table of most houses. An advertisement by J&J Carrick, who book printers in a fair way uh, on the occasion of the removal of the printing office from Bedford Road to Bachelors' Walk. In 1804, shows their range. They claim to have spared no expense a quote, to render their press a general, complete, and expeditious medium of mercantile and public intelligence. They have imported likewise a quantity of new and beautiful types from the first family in England, and lately with stock of fine papers for such publications as may require elegance of typography and ornament. Advertisements, cards, auction and handbills, large posting bills, etc., worked off in a few hours without disappointment. Circular letters, mercantile receipts, shop bills, catalogues, etc., leases, rent rolls, ejectments, and li- legal, military, and naval forms of every description, executed with expedition and correctness on the same model of terms as have rendered the office so remarkable. Now, the recently discovered ledger of the printer's Ring Campbell, which has just come into the in the last few months, um, and these people are in a big way of business. They've got an office in Back Lane and they're also leasing the University Printing House. Um shows an intermingling of book and jobbing work. Um, small runs of sort of 200 large cards for Crumlin School um, or 100 muster rolls for some big militia out down the country uh, done at the commission of the stationer. Um, come alongside with a nine-sheet work of The Life of George, of General Washington, in 750 copies, or two-and-a-half sheets to a decimal of Dr. Troy's Catechism, in an edition of 6,000. So it's a pretty great mix of work. Um, we're going to edit this letter at the Because this letter, and in thing those discovered we had no 18th-century documentation for what was going on in the in Dublin. Um, it is unfortunately the ledger with the customers, not the magazine's ledger with the workers. Hey, can kind of um, What has become clear is that the prosperity of many Dublin printers was underpinned by contract printing for government bodies or private institutions. Now, the plumb official offices of King's Printer and the King's Stationer, they make an impact, as everywhere else, uh, printing law and all this sort of thing. And Wilson, the King's Printer, was very generously compensated, I think, £40,000, for his law superficial work at the time of the Union. Um, but later evidence comes that he, has in- he increases the number of people in his workshop in 1813 because he manages to fiddle a contract whereby any law books. That his books used in Ireland are actually printed by him and not by the London Indian Sprinter. So he wins on swings and roundabouts. King is a much more interesting figure, um, relentless in his insistence on his right, um, to supply stationery, new printing, binding, pins, whatever. He was given a baronetcy by George IV. In 1820. By 1823, it was proved to Parliament that he had been enormously exceeding profit, the limits of profit on supplying paper, creaming off tens of thousands of pounds. So he ended up being stripped of his patent in 1837 and um, rather disgraced. But he um, didn't have to get cash back. Now, but his career lies at the time of trade. Um, the more mundane productions for societies were done on much narrower margins. Evidence to the Commissioners of Education in Ireland in 1824, gives a notion of the numbers of books produced. Charles Barton, the literary assistant to the Society for the Education of the Poor, gave evidence that the standard edition size was 10,000, though 15,000 were printed of Essex Fables, in consequence of a greater demand for that book. In terms of sales, he said, quote, of Elizabeth, that is, cousins Elizabeth. 65,000 copies have been printed since the year 1817. 35,000 since November 1816 of scriptural extracts, comprising the history of Joseph, etc. Of Psalms and Proverbs, only 20,000 since December 1819, and 60,000 of six fables since mid um, 1817. Coin was Catholic and becomes printed in New. College, the said major seminary, um, contracted the Society for Circulating the Roman Catholic Version of the New Testament, 20,000 copies of the New Testament in 1820. And it is this that is work that underpins the success story of whatever Irish movies were successful. Um, and particularly so were the books produced by the Commissioners of National Education in the 1830s and 40s. Uh, Ramburn even 48, the some English publishers complained to Lord John Russell, the Prime Minister, that the Commissioners' books accounted for 25% of the British market for school books. A share which, because of adjustments they insisted on, actually increased to nearer 50% in the succeeding ten years. Uh, British thought that by changing the curriculum. Uh, the international spread was why. The imprint from an English grammar published by the commissioners reads Dublin sold by W. Curry, Jr. Co., R. Groombridge and Sons, London, George Philip, Liverpool, Fraser and Co., Edinburgh, Armour and Ramsey and Donoghue and Mance, Montreal, and Chubb and Co., Halifax, Nova Scotia, in 1847. When I was in Montreal, I was looking at a recent book on the Canadian book chain, and the author, of that suggests, in fact, suggested that the um, Armour and Ramsey subcontacted to print uh, the text in Montreal, So, I don't know. There's two bits of evidence, and that needs further investigation. Um, but these are all lesser sort of books selling six books or so. Um, and what, the question is what happened to the better class of books? Now, for a moment, the evidence has to come from subscription publishing for additional sizes. Now, as in Britain, subscription publishing is on the way in in this period. A quick run-round the usual sources um, gives a total of 158 for the period. Now that's an inadequate figure I expect to be double in the course of time, notwithstanding the work being done in Newcastle, Britain. Now these divide into 107 for 1801 to 1825 and 51 from 1826 to 1850. Um, you can discount a certain number of these to an extent because the annual racing calendar has a list right. of subscribers every year, the thing that the people who are working, gathering the books, subscriptionists in Britain, don't seem to have realised, um, uh, pres- and I presume the English racing calendar also has annual subscribers, and somebody said to me, uh, these people aren't subscribing for the book, but I think they were, they probably read it very really closely, but anyway, Away from the racing calendar, um, a few things of concise. One example is James Gore, The Revenue History of Ireland in 1804, published by subscription. Um, he recognised the lesser wealth of Ireland compared to Britain, so while a quarter edition was printed in London, he announced uh, proposals um, for an October edition in Dublin, because he wished to accommodate his fellow countrymen with a cheap edition. That's what he said. Um, and of this one, some copies of very fine paper came in at pound two and 9 pence and others came in at £7.06. different 5 And he got 281 subscribers for 560 copies of this edition. A useful manual for lawyers, Leonard McNally's The Justice of the Peace for Alley, printed by Hugh Fitzpatrick in 1808, two volumes, got 642 subscribers, very established people. For seven six to seven copies, um, Fitzpatrick took a hundred of these. Stop. Uh, in 1815, 473 people subscribed for 1,004 copies of the Catholic work by Cosin, the Holy Court, printed by Foley. While in the same year, 1,230 people took 1,246 copies of Atkinson's Irish Tourist, which the author had printed for himself. Um, and there is little relationship between people who appear subscribing to the casting work and those looking for the tourist work. Now, of course, in subscription publishing so much depends on the exertions of the author in peddling around on his bicycle or whatever and taking up subscriptions in his own neighborhood. And uh, I've got nice examples of that. In 1824, um, 659 people subscribed to Donnelly's poem, Love of Britain. And they all virtually come from a 25-mile radius, in an area which is basically 30 miles from mile. So that is pure work by the author. And again, 1835, Matthew Archdeacon's novel, Everard, invariably referred to in booksellers' catalogs, it's very rare, um, attracted 528 subscribers for 534 copies, all but 79 of them coming from west of the Shannon, that is minimum of 80 miles from Dublin, and they made the main with King Sligo, and of course the book are probably thrown out I mean, of in the sort of relevant neighborhood county. Now, there's obviously yet to do an analysis of the book published in Ireland, and, uh, and even when this work in the 19th century by Averill Publications is done, it's going to be entirely inadequate. Um, but this is my impression from look through local influence and chronological files. That there is little of wider interest being brought out up to 1830. That the majority of books were school books, sermons, um, especially those preached by clergymen of the Church of Ireland, um, pious books of all persuasions, poetry, a few novels, and a number of breakfasts. Now this is all the stuff of provincial trade, nothing more. Uh, very little science published. Uh, apart from a few contributions to bodies like the Royal Irish Academy or the Royal Dublin Society. But beginning in the 1820s and very distinct in the 1830s is a sense of intellectual vigor in Ireland um, which is closely paralleled by a sense of mission review of the established church. They're in an awful lot of trouble for their time collecting, but they really feel at this stage that, having been an established church for, by then, 280 years, it's time to start with the Irish, and um, there's great, great figure, and um, well, plenty of spats between different denominations. But there is this intellectual figure In publishing a few trends stand out, the rise, as elsewhere, of a vigorous periodical press, the publishing of Irish fiction in Ireland, and also the growth of domestic law publishing. Um, The periodical publishing covered the whole spectrum of society, from cheap artisans' magazines to the internationally known and respected Dublin University magazine, um, edited by Lever at the tail end of the 30s and later on by left Ruth the, the um, writer of great things like Miles, Michael Silence. Um, the publishing of fiction which reached a national audience is marked largely by the works of Lever, um, published by Curry and Co. until they went broke in the late eighteen forties. Now Lever, unfortunately is now only a footnote in um Christians being literature. Um, Regarding as a minor Irish novel is terribly prolific but um, Linbert Lee was at the time was being compared by the critics rather favorably with Dickens. They would sooner have written Lieber's books than Dickens. Well, well I can't stand Dickens anyway, so I would too have told them. But Lieber's recognition has gone completely. But nonetheless, I mean these, these were being published in large numbers and being exported. Um, and it is the sort of the sense of a revival of the trade in international terms and in prestige. Um, now the third thing is the taking law provides Irish law publishing. Despite the large number of private publishing law in the 18th-century government, very few originated in Ireland or specifically written with an Irish audience in mind, notwithstanding the fact of a separate legal system. But in the late 1820s, of speech publishing, retrospective collections of law reports, current journals of law, of law cases, manuals for barristers, justices of the peace, and so on. Um, and so on, so by late 1844, one firm, Hodges and Smith, could take a three-column newspaper advertisement in the very large-selling patriotic paper, The Nation, Advertising over 60 titles on law published by them. Bring on, this publishing went on uh, right until about 1914 and <coughs> stopped there, wasn't war. But after that, when we got the new state, it didn't take up again. There was virtually no indigenous law publishing until the 1970s and it was now in full There again, um, that may be a to the fact that Victorian legislation persisted in Ireland for many years because our legislators were reluctant to update the law. Um, in broad terms, printing and publishing picked up in the 1830s, 1840s. Um, now, I reckon for the directory I'm going to end up with something like 2,000 names uh, for the half-century. These are people in all levels of the business, from people who push book barrels around the keys, selling all second-hand books, to major publishers. Um, And unfortunately, I can't give you sensible figures from the directories, which sort of indicate a scale, because the directories, you get a sense that the directories are very... Accuracy with which they can and so we people. But by the 1840s, I have about four times as many people in my card index for the year as I had about the the at the Q10 when we think the beginning of the to high. Now, how big were the British establishments? Most of them I think were extremely small. They were about two presses. Uh, the key records of what we read all are, of course, the records of licenses issued for presses by the Stamp Office. There's a one-line entry for them in the State Paper Office, and it comes in a volume which is labelled State Papers No Longer Extant. Uh, and, of course, we had a major disaster in 1922 in the Civil War when the four courts which housed the records, Public Record Office, then was blown up. Uh, one of the great acts of vandalism. However, you never know. The wretched things may turn up somewhere because somebody may have shut up something, and, or they might have been shoved over doing anything. are not really sure. Um, There's no sign of them yet, but I hope. Something like that. In the meantime, the, our estimates of the early part of the centuries have to come largely from advertisements of uh, forced sales. Um, more information comes from other sources from the Thirties. Typical advertisement is the sort of thing that appeared in Saunders' newsletter on 24 24th September 1821, detailing an offer of equipment. Quote, To be sold, two good presses fit for newspaper work. An imposing stone, several large troughs thickly leathered, five frames, about twelve pair of cases, a few brass galleys, and a variety of other articles useful in the printing office. When um, Joseph Hayden, this is Hayden of the Dictionary of Dates. Um, was being sold up in 1825. Uh, and he ran into appalling trouble. I mean, the man seemed to go around looking for libel actions to be launched against him. Uh, Robin Myers did a thing on him in uh, one of the um, Publishing Pathway series um, a couple of years ago. Five um, years later, career. But anyway, he was sold up in 1825. Um, and the equipment included two presses, large imposing stones, several pair of cases with stands, and to the report is, the auction may have produced £200. The following year, Woodmason was, was a gangster of sorts, uh, did some official printing for government, sold up um, at the suit of an of dublin bookseller, and goes out of business, with three presses and two imposing stones. So, so that's the sort of level you seem to be mostly operating on. Now, there's better quality information in the eighteen thirties, stemming from a character called Philip Dixon Hardy, journalist first and later printer and later publisher. Um, firstly, it comes from an issue of this periodical The Dublin Penny Journal in eighteen thirty-four, which is entirely first to printing, uh, and has a certain of printing classes. And secondly, in his evidence to the Commission, this parliamentary commission on combinations. Um, in 1838, which is recorded in the second report. Now the Penny Journal gives pictures of his printing house, which I see no reason to doubt the accuracy of as it praises the artist print, and this shows five hand presses and steam presses. I mean the occasion for publishing this is that he's got the first steam press in Ireland. So that's actually quite late, um, so it just shows that the circulation up there were that didn't really the one getting one in. Um, three Colombians, a stand and a climber, where the uh, ten persons. one of the latter, had been built in Dublin by all um, Now he gave evidence in 1838, to this commission and combination, uh, that he had employed 15 men regularly by the week, and he says, I have had fifteen to twenty others at case and press, more or less as business required it, and seven or nine apprentices. There's also a wages ledger of R. D. Webb and Co., um, which runs the to 1860s. And this shows the same pattern of casual hiring in the eighteen forties. It's curious that I am feeling there's something odd about the first five years. But it looks okay thereafter. Um, but when appears to hire, you know, 5% of the workforce appears to be casually hired uh, at peak periods. And August is a bad month for the business if you're a casual worker. Now the lack of work had been a feature of many complaints throughout the years. Um, hardly blamed it on the trade unions in their insistence on a closed shop, um, because a something which had to give money to put bad work. On. The union representatives saw the questions of the clothes shop, poor wages and the abuse of friendship as interconnected. In 1825, the Journeymen of Dublin placed a lengthy personage in Saunders' newsletter because they, quote, feel called upon in duty to themselves and the public to lay open and expose an iniquitous system of fraud and imposition practised by petty master printers in this city and the provincial towns throughout Ireland on a credulous and unsuspecting community. These men, alive only to what affects themselves, and reckless of the evil consequences that must result from others from the prosecution of their interested schemes, contrive to impose on the public, by representation of the prosperous state of the printing business, of the respectability and intelligence of the members of that art, of the golden prospects that await a young man on a completion of his apprenticeship, etc., and hold out a variety of other hopes and expectations, equally vague and illusory, until they fill their establishment with apprentices from the parents of each of whom they have extorted a large fee, Um, under the pretence of teaching the lads the art of printing. In fact, the journeyman claimed, the art of printing in this country at no time prosperous has been for many years rapidly decaying under the withering influence of English monopoly. And goes on to say that no trade or profession requiring an equal portion of intelligence is so badly paid as printing in most of the establishments in Dublin, an intense and unremitting application during 16 hours in the day and six days of the week is required by a person so trifling as to be insufficient for the comforts of the applicant himself independent of his wife and family. Uh, and they resolved to protect their, thing by, their art by all legal means. Uh, well, this is, of course, a bit over the top. On the other hand, I mean, you know, you do have an lost lot of labour. And by 1836, the typographical union had decided to impose the limitation on the number of apprentices that could be had in any way. And they were able to make it stick by going out on strike. Um, give two weeks notice, two weeks notice, and so that's right. um, And they resolved that apprentices could be had as a proportion of one to two men permanently employed two apprentices to four, three to six, and where more than six on the number of apprentices may be increased to four, but on no account shall that number be exceeded. There were, so, that was, they were able to make that stick. Now, evidence of the commission on combinations gives a total of 260 union members, that is, independent of the master printers, uh, 180 boys, and 20 to 30 non-union members. And union evidence is that of the 260 members, only 140 had anything like permanent employment, and in the preceding four years, 120 had been given grants to emigrate. So the trade is obviously not one to get into. Um, Hardy agreed that the system of pension had been abused, but blamed the union, said that I have not, for the last three years, considered that I had any authority in my own office, that is, in matters of hiring people that he had to get a union man, and they was being sort of doled out to him um, uh, by some sort of different system. And so he was very much aggrieved to have to pay a high price to men who did not know their business, and goes on to explain that, of course, in work from a manuscript, it's very costly for him. Now, returning wage rates is uh, not extremely well, it's never easy. Really uh, Peace work rates were established in 1800 by agreement between the masters and the journey. That document was printed. There's a copy in Save Rights, uh, printed historical library, and uh, I have a first copy something it somewhere else. Um 1826, despite the journey case, eh? the despite a very considerable hardship, which led to a fund being raised for unemployed countries, They forced through an increase in wages. There was a currency trade in 1826. The Irish currency, which had previously been uh, in the proportion of a pound English being equivalent to a pound and one pound, one shilling and eightpence Irish, um, were brought together. And the Irish workmen resolved that they would be, the amount bigger than the would be paid in Irish money would be paid at the same number of figures in English currency. So that was a sort of considerable percentage of increase. Um, by the 1830s, the standard rate for compositors in a regular book house, where there was no nightwear, was 30 shillings, against London rates of 33 shillings. Newspaper rates for compositors ranged from an extremely low in a non-Union house of 21 shillings to 36 shillings and 11 pence for a standard 10-hour day. When in the mid-1840s, when the trade, I think, is undoubtedly again in crisis, seems to pay his top compulsory about 25 trillion a week. There again, the leases all vary, the of available, and the profitability of the firm. money. the guy who's about to go out in business is going to run down the way first, so. Now, bookbinders, um, these are turning out to be much more numerous value than I thought that we liked it. You know the Grandson's book on book in the United Kingdom outside London in 1840. Well, I find them turning up a lot more than they are. Not necessarily finding beautiful things, but uh, a lot more are coming up as the underground. I mean, you reckon that virtually every bookseller is, has a binding in the back. But there are an awful lot of people. And I think part of the answer lies to this question. By the I mean, lies in Wakeman's answers to the Christian inquiry into the revenue. He um, says that many booksellers here are now in the habit of getting their books in sheets. There's a difference of a penny to twopence of volume in binding a school book and threepence to fourpence on a larger book between Dublin and London. Is, leather is much cheaper in Dublin and labour also. Now school book binding is the bottom of the pit. Um, and at the top, The 18th century fine binding tradition was carried on by people like the two George Mullins, Thomas Mullin and James Adams. Now, Barton in 1824, in of Education, says school book binding, which the contract is, and is explaining how much competition is, is done by people of an inferior class who take it home to their own rooms and therefore the competition cannot be expected to be very extensive among them, executing as they do only 5,000 at a thousand time. Um, Mullen is much more interesting because he his advertising is set up and loose in 1827, perhaps for the second time because he's been sufficient for discharge an insolvent in 1825, but anyway, uh, 1827 is setting up and loose again. Now, he, I can prove he's a craft finder because Miriam Ford featured one of his works in The Book Collector in Winter 1986, in the series, Inks Book Findings. Anyway, he sets up and he advertises. He asserts and asserts truly that he is the cheapest and best book in Dublin. The following facts will go far through the this. He served his apprenticeship to his father's brother, the late George Muller of Nassau Street, and most bookmen know that in this case his name alone is a power of strength. T. Mullen is also has also the advantages of having been finisher to the best establishments in London, being a workman and executing the principal part of the trade with his own hands. Is it not likely that books will be bound cheaper and better at his establishment than at others, where finishers are employed at heavy salaries? Octavos neatly bound at a shilling each and duodecimals as low as ninepence. Now, he immediately gets into a price fellow from John Pernod in Pitt Street, which is about 150 yards where he's setting up, who Pernod under the determination of not being excelled by any other house in Dublin. His prices are very low, and his specimen's not inferior to any find in this city. Octavio is strongly bound at ninepence, and duodecimals only sixpence. So they go on advertising to um, Mullen reduces his prices by twenty-five percent, which he claims leaves look, at least fifty percent lower than the price of any other respectable binder in Dublin. And as to pasting, T. Mullen will give references to some of the most distinguished noblemen and gentlemen of the country who have honoured him with their patronage and suggested that very few have. He prepared to do bindings from these um, things at shilling, well, less twenty-five percent, and do it essentially um up as far as 12 guineas. So he's, here is a craft finder covering the full spectrum, you know, eager to get working. Um, and all goes to the wall it becomes insolvent. Mullin um, comes under further uh, competition because having already reduced prices 25%, in 1829 he reduces them another 10%. And uh, there's a note there that indicates that he's getting a lot of stick from his fellow binders. Now, the number of binders gradually falls in the 1840s. Now, this may be much the result of more binding being done in printed works rather than in work, and not necessarily represent a real fall in the numbers employed. Now, bookselling is where we really reach unquantifiable factors. Uh, the majority of the books sold by the better-class retailers were printed in great books. There's no doubt about it uh, because there weren't printing them. And two or three Dublin booksellers had strong relationships with London Houses. People like Cumming, who's in business in the uh, towards 1820 as a wholesale bookseller who goes on another 20 years. Um, publisher, retail bookseller. William Curry Jr. who starts up in the late 1820s and continues to be late 1840s. Uh, he goes out of where he goes bankrupt. His name is frequently on London influence as the Irish source of hope. Um, details of his actual financial involvement have, have yet to come through. Um, he may be co-publishing. He's much more likely to or Mount in period 1810 as he these by the Survivor National Library. And very nicely, of course, the books were the foundation of Michael Sadler's 19th century fiction. These two ones were found in such beautiful conditions. And they're now in, I think the half right, in ColourPoint Hmm? Yeah, well, okay. Yeah, somewhere out there in the West. Uh, but the invoices are in Dublin. Now, a number of the booksellers in Dublin publish catalogues. And these, of course, give you some guess in stock sizes. The biggest of them, undoubtedly, is one I haven't seen. it's... The sale of the stock and trade had been a dug day. He died in Iden about 1828, um, and the stock is so of funny because he's related uh, the book trade um, But it's announced as having retained 60,000 volumes. There's a man who goes very religious and publishes a lot of religious stuff as well as selling books. Um, and there's all this, is an enormous number of the booksellers have. But they it is through the months following a Saunders newsletter, auction after auction of this stock. By the time I reached the last auction ten months later, I fully believe the stock might have reached 60,000 um, dollars. Ten months is a long time for the auction all the stock and trade. Now, at the beginning of the century, Harriet Colbert, who does a bit of publishing of novels and that sort of thing, um, puts out a catalogue of ancient and modern books in 1802, listing 2,844 lots In 1813, Miriam Mann has 6,199. Uh, a much more modest affair was Richard Harmon's um, catalogue of modern books, selling at unusually low prices in 1830, with only 1,135 items and two pages full of instructive and amusing publications to young people. Um, Harmon has a very short business career. Um, 15th of December 1828, announces that it's setting up as a bookseller, publisher, and stationer um, in 73 Dane Street, which is a good street to be in. A lot of good people there. He served time to one of the first houses in the city and had his job with Grierson. He was a printer for nearly 10 years, so he's probably in his early 30s. And um, he opened a shop by the end of that year, 1838. He tried to get lawyers patronage by saying he's supposed to open a library with law texts in it and reports. Um, in late October 1829 he starts up a periodical. Then uh, he runs into a domestic disaster. His son dies in five months of an inflammation of lunch. Um, now it's very tempting it to sort of suggest that I I uh, as he goes out of business in 1830, the half has gone out. But I think it's probably wrong to do so. But by the second wave in 1830, he returns to Britain as a catalogue, put the house up the and who comes under notice later as insolvent in 1832 being to be in the uh, A much bigger enterprise is Grant granted Bolton from the 1820s to the 1840s, putting out a lot of catalogues dealing with modern and old books. Uh, the bargain in the catalogue of 1833 was the uh, unidentified sense and sensibility of three volumes of Stuart Essendon, London, 1813, pretty me to half pound, eight shillings, with a note it sells at one pound, three shillings, presumably in uh, So that was the, the bargain of the year. Um, they published catalogs up to between seven and 9,000 uh, volumes. The Shakespeare Third Folio, at six guineas. Um, it's a remark that this retails London at 18 guineas. In uh, 1838, and this is nice, they have a catalogue of very extensive secondhand books, uh, which running title, actually running along the foot, say so catalog cheap books, uh, extensively classified and um, the tale of the first appearance in Dublin, that we know of of the of New uh, Which seems to gather to thousands. And um other four later last year in Australia, um, bought nineteen volumes, and I think probably from this catalogue, four or six of them are bound volumes. And with the note, now, so these are booksellers in decent way places. But the, well, and the well, another important in library is the number of book auctions. There are book auctions, always, um, oh, I suppose, about ten each year. Now, if there's no trade, they wouldn't have the auctions. Um, not all that many catalogues have survived, but um, those are indicated extensive libraries. One uh, newspaper publisher, Conway, was able to build up a very extensive library uh, with a lot of them from that and um, sold in the 1850s. Um, and I think that's that same Trinity Library bought something like 28 Camilla. Um, and that was all of them. Now, that the 1840s forces were darkened by the great famine 1845 1845–1847, which brought a decline of 19.5% of the population of the recorded between 1841 and 1851, and of course brought falling economic disruption, besides global uh, river dying off. Um, and this is reflected in the book trade. Now I read the officially present for 15 years. And this recalls bankruptcy and insolvencies have to be multiplied. Um, a total of 284 instances of bankruptcy and insolvency in the 50 years. And all of these, 73, which by 25%, arise in the five years 1844 to 1848 Now this suggests that the trade is an economic crisis before the time. It certainly was by the family because money was not coming up for books. I mean, it was survival of a group, right? Milliken, who was one of the big, who was descendant from Richard Milliken, uh, and was in a decent way of business, goes bankrupt in 1844, and his assets were bought, were bought from the assignees for seven and a half thousand. Now, I don't know how much discount you expect on an assignees, say, of stock, but presumably there's a good 30% discount or something. Um, so, you know, the stock value is really quite high. Um, Foles goes bankrupt, a uh, printer goes bankrupt in 1845, Five is um business. And I think the middle in America on uh, some sort of a passage from another printer. The Catholic bookseller, Coyne, who's a massive of Catholic business, um, thriving on cheap pervert or crazy type previously tried and cheap prayer books um, and William Price, Lever. um, both go in the seven. Uh there's some very interesting uh, snippets of correspondence in Leaver's letters um, this is t- uh, this comes in um, Edward Downey's Charles Leaver letters now the letters were extant in uh, 1900 or so no trace of them now, but uh, they may well be around somewhere, but they haven't been done far enough. The one conspicuous survivor into 1850s is James Duffy, who manages to establish in London and elsewhere, in the nation of Tasmania or somewhere, an international business. Um, it's firmly based on the triple pillars, of Catholic piety, school books, and nationalist literature. High volume, low margin work. And pretty nasty, most of it is. The half-century closes the trade sadly disturbed by the economic consequences of the family, but signs of vigor um, in the export of the school books by the commissioners, the emergence of ducking in the international scene, and the maturing of the Dublin University Press, who in 18, which in 1851 published the best 19th century book produced in Ireland. The by two language uh, annals of the four masters. Now, so there's a general pattern, despite hiccups, with the normal government in 1826 and the family years, of expansion from about 1812 on. Um, but the loss of people was hard. Working life was generally expected to last 20 years. Um, in 1826, things were so hard there was a fund collected for unemployed printers and Many painters were employed on relief works by the government, breaking stones for roads. I find of them all, though most were reasonably respectable, only two were hanged. One, an engraver who for want of business decided to print his own banknotes and was poor and the police did not take the press away from him, and his wife moved house and press and few days later. Uh, they decided not to hang her in view of her distressed condition. So her, her husband being hanged, I think, she was sent away to Australia for a holiday, seven years or life. And the other, I think, he's a barrel boy. He's got a stand somewhere, but. Um, this officer not paying, he goes in for highway robbery and he's convicted of that. And the one interesting thing about his trial is that he's given a character by a shoemaker who says that the um, highwayman bookseller sold the divinity uh, and that the shoemaker had bought 900 volumes from him. Now, allowing for a exaggeration, trying to get this guy a good character that it's obviously a substratum of artisans who are reading. And evidence of that, of course, is only going to appear. But most lived and died in, um, I think, obscurity and poverty. But if I hope in about five years' time, uh, three years to complete and three years to get it public, um, the names of a certain sense, it's over percent of these people um, will be pushed in the list and some detail of the life characters. Thank you.